Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar and PV Case. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. This is Suncast. I just want to say I'm so grateful that you are giving us the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That is your time. I'm so impressed that I have an opportunity to earn your attention. And I wanted to ask you a quick question. If I could give you 10 million and you only had one way to spend it to create a more sustainable world, how would you invest that 10 million? Where would you invest that treasure? That's a question that our friend Scott Wynn, the CEO of Bodhi Solar, asked three panelists we hosted on our Earth Day live broadcast. We were joined by Carolyn Golan, Head of Energy Markets and Policy at Google, Mark Tomasovic, Principal at Energize Ventures, and Sonal Sumaya, Sustainability Investments at Google. The conversation was wide-ranging, but it hit on a number of areas around how the largest in the land, Google, and one of the most forward-leaning startup VCs, Energize, are thinking about tackling climate change through their investments, how they're funneling their technology and their dollars. There were practical tips throughout the conversation around ways that you could work at a startup or volunteer for a policy campaign, different ways that you could solve the problems we need to address in the world. There's just so much energy and enthusiasm and knowledge in the climate area but the awareness of how to be involved is relatively low. We try to address that in today's broadcast. If you like these kinds of conversations, you're in the right place. We've got more than 600 episodes here on the Suncast podcast that feature thought leaders and industry executives like the ones in this conversation in our back catalog. You can find those at mysuncast.com. And I hope that you will subscribe to the show so you won't miss our twice weekly content just like this. For now, I want to invite you to lean in as we get ready to dig into another practical, tactical episode here on Suncast. All right. Welcome in, everyone. I want to welcome you once again to today's Earth Day panel. From startups to major sustainability players, lessons learned from Google and Energize. My name is Nico Johnson. I'm so happy that you have uh, joined the party. Speaking of party, why were folks at the Climate Change Party so shy? Well, nobody wanted to break the ice. <laughs> Always like to get started here with a little bit of levity. Nobody wants to break the ice, right? All right. Thank you for taking the time to be here. If you are unfamiliar, my name is Nico Johnson. I'm hoping that you join because you uh, follow me or, or one of the other panelists here on our esteemed panel of guests today. I'm the host of Popular Clean Energy podcast, also known as Suncast and the CEO of the, the company by the same name, Suncast Media, where it's our job to guide you through the energy transition, sharing insights from and wisdom from the clean energy industry's brightest innovators and business leaders. We've got some of those folks here with us 
So there are a few things we're going to be talking about today. Before I make an intro of our panel, let me cover those, how Google is approaching climate change solutions, both internally and externally, what kinds of climate technologies are truly making a difference, and what other businesses can learn from Google's challenges and successes. I am going to go ahead and introduce our panelists. I'll start with Caroline Golan. She is the head of energy markets and policy at Google. She serves the, in this role that as the responsible person for creating a global movement to support 24-7 carbon-free energy. Google's initiative to source carbon-free power to match their electricity consumption in all places at all times. We have also Mark Tomasovic joining as a principal from Energize. He is on the investment team at Energize, responsible for the investment thesis creation, portfolio development, and sourcing of new opportunities. He also serves on the board of Handel, and he's an observer of Urban, Twice, and Monta. Third, we have Sonal Somaya. Sonal is lead for sustainability investments and corporate development at Google. She leads Alphabet's sustainability investment efforts at the Google Corporate Ventures. Had a decade plus of experience working across early, mid, and late stage innovation. In her work and beyond, she's passionate about the intersection of global development, new technologies, sustainability, and politics. And I'm looking forward to learning from all three of our esteemed guests today about what they have learned in their various roles in investing in climate tech. And our host today, who is himself investing in climate tech and building a wonderful company, uh, to guide us through the discussion, one of only 12 participants in Google's Accelerator for Climate Change, my friend and yours, Mr. Scott Wynn. He's the CEO of Bodhi, a design-focused software company helping residential solar companies deliver amazing customer experiences with ease. And now I'll hand the mic over to my friend, Scott Wen. Thanks, Scott. And so this is the third in a series of um, Earth Day special webinars that we've Bodhi has hosted. And so we're really glad to be doing this again this year. Now, before we dive in, I just want to do a quick pop quiz for the audience. And so Jeremy, can you launch quiz um, question number one and see how much the audience knows about uh, some climate change. So the first question is, what share of the world's population sees climate change as a threat to their country over the next 20 years? So you guys can um, reflect on that question. Think, is it around 25%, 45%, maybe 65%? Now, this question was asked um, a few couple years ago. And so we'll be able to share with you the results from um, 2019. So I'm wondering actually how... It, what the answer is today, we actually ask the question again. And so what share of the world's population sees climate change as a threat to their country over the next 20 years? Well, it turns out 53% of the folks think it's uh, around 65%. And indeed, that is the answer. It is 65%. So back in 2019, when this question was asked globally, around 65% of people considered climate change a threat to their country. We've got that question. I want to just ask one, give you one more question on this pop quiz. And this is a little bit uh, trickier. What happens to the average global temperature if we have the annual net emissions of CO2 today? Does it start to decrease? Does it stay about the same or does it keep on increasing? So the correct answer 
to this question is C, it keeps increasing. So don't worry, I think most of the folks here actually got it right. If you did get it wrong, don't worry. A lot of other folks who previously answered this question, I think 71% of those folks got the question wrong. So, hey, Mark, you were a chemical engineer back in the days, right? Yeah, you worked for Exxon too. So can you explain why this is the case? My assumption would be because CO2 is accumulating and it's it's kind of like a time-based problem, right? And so CO2 goes into the atmosphere, it stays in the atmosphere. I can't give you the exact like half-life of CO2. I'm sure someone knows that. But yeah, once it goes up there, um, yeah, it sticks around for a while. I, I was actually just kind of joking and get you to answer that question. But you know what? Maybe you shouldn't actually, you shouldn't be investing in, in climate um, change technologies. Maybe you should be inventing some of those, Mark. All right. So <laughs> that was fun. I hope everyone kind of learned a little bit of new things and then have some, has some um, fodder for tomorrow's conversations as icebreakers to the any Earth Day event. So, so let's, I want to dive in and just see what insights our panelists have to offer us. And so as a reminder, if you do have any questions for the panelists, just type it into the Q&A box and we're going to be able, we're going to start uh, answering some of those questions just, um, within the conversation itself. So what I want to like to first focus on is just what are the corporates doing to start to um, tackle climate change, in particular, what's Google doing? And so, Caroline, let's start with you. When most people think about Google and climate change, um, I would say most of the folks tend to think about Google simply buying clean energy to power their, you know, massive number of data centers. And but what was interesting was I had recently learned that one of Google's core commitments was advancing sustainability. Can you tell us how sustainability got prioritized and promoted to be one so high on the at Google? Sure, um, and thank you for having me uh, today. I'm excited to have the conversation. So I'll step back and say that I think sustainability has been a core tenant at Google uh, for over a decade. I think it's more recently that um, we've started really articulating this in terms of um, business principles. But, you know, Google, it is, its sustainability journey has really evolved, I think, really over the last 13 years from being thought leaders, from being advanced on the products development side, from being advanced on the um, procurement side. And a lot of that is a cyclical process, you know, where we're innovative. Innovation is at the core of this company. We innovate on something, we have a great idea, we learn something, we try something new. But our sustainability journey has always largely been focused about our own operations. And within the last couple of years, we've been really able to branch that out into products, into investments, into partnerships alike. So probably most people don't know, but we've been, our operations have been carbon neutral since we, since 2007. And since 2017, we've operated all of our office buildings and all of our data centers with matching it with 100% renewable energy. And as you alluded to, um, recently in, in 2020, we set the goal to achieve 24-7 carbon-free energy, which I'm sure we'll get into in today's podcast. But that motivation has been building for, for a long time. And I think that this doesn't come out a lot, but a lot of the reason why Google is committed to sustainability is because the employees of Google are committed to sustainability. We are a very employee-driven company, and our employees call for this. The other reason is, is that our, our products, our operations touch the globe. 
So we have a responsibility to this just in the fact that we are in every community and we are in everyone's homes and lives. And because of that, we have a footprint that we have to take accountable for. And we also care about it because um, we are an integral part of this economy and there is nothing um, more purposeful than we can do than to ensure the stability of our economy. And the stability of our economy is ultimately tied to the stability of our ecosystem. So it's been a core value for Google for a very, very, very long time. It's now becoming um, a core business value in new and innovative ways, which I, I'm learning from every day. Google's a huge company. But what I'll say is that I think what, get, what we, we fail to recognize is how customer-driven and how employee-driven it, it really, really is. Our leadership cares about this, and they also care about responding to what the people who service this company and the people, you know, our customers really care about. So it really from that organic demand. Yeah, thanks, Caroline. I think we're, what we're going to do, we're definitely going to dive into some of those specifics and uh, later in the conversation. So, but I want to turn it over to you, Mark. You're coming kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum now. You know, Energize has been a major investor in climate change, but then you've got LPs who are coming from some of the more traditional sectors. Can you actually, can you can explain why an investment approach like Energizes was needed? And then how is that different from most other investors? Yeah, so we're energized and we invest venture capital and growth equity into digital solutions that are helping drive sustainability and, um, and low carbon solutions you know, across a variety of different industries. And like, like you said, a significant portion of our, um, of our investors are folks like GE and Schneider Electric and Caterpillar and Invenergy who are looking for frontier technologies to help themselves decarbonize or to help advance uh, their businesses if they're, for example, like renewable power, uh, power producers or power developers. And so energized by being an investment firm, we kind of have this really unique flywheel where our limited partners and our corporate network will come to us and they'll say, hey, these are the issues that we're having with our wind turbines, or these are the issues that we're having procuring renewable energy, or this is our manufacturing process that we would like to decarbonize. And they would ask us, have you ever heard of these problems or through your market research, have you come across any solutions, specifically the digital technologies that can address some of those problems? And oftentimes we have, but if we haven't, then someone within our firm will raise their hand and they'll say, hey, that sounds like a really interesting problem. I'm going to go out and I'm going to explore the market for a variety of startups that are, that are solving that problem. And it becomes a really interesting flywheel because then we go out, we find a startup that's solving that problem. We can introduce them back to our corporate network with no strings attached. The startup has the potential to sign that corporate for a potential customer relationship. And then Energize gets to develop that relationship with a startup if there's ever an investment opportunity in the future. So we really rely heavily on our, on our corporate network and corporate LPs to develop um, insights into what some of the problems are. And then we go out and try to find solutions for those problems. So now let me see if you can actually bridge the divide now between Google, who is like a customer, Mark representing some of the both corporates, but also the startups. So from corp, um, you know, Google's corporate venture arm started like focusing on sustainability about maybe a little bit over a year ago or so, I think. And with Google being a tech company, you guys, you know, what why was it needed to start looking externally for solutions? And 
you know, what is that vision of for that you have and that um, corporate venture Google's corporate venture arm have for an ideal startup Google relationship, kind of similar to what Mark might have been uh, referring to. Yeah, so it's a it's a great question. Um, as you alluded to, in the corporate venture world, we sit both uh, between the spectrum of what Mark's talking about with pure venture investing um, and what Caroline's team works on, which is really managing our operations. And so I think the unique thing about corporate venture capital is that we really have to have to sit and, you know, play both sides of the discussion. And so we really partner closely with our teams that are running the operations so we can understand what our admittedly like very large demand for certain technologies is going to be, and then approach the market with the lens of of commercialization. We know we're going to be a buyer given the huge data center footprint that we have, huge energy consumption needs that we have, and the, the big commitments that are very ambitious that we've set for ourselves for 2030. Um, we, we come at the market with a lens of how are we actually going to fulfill some of those. And then we really think about how we can accelerate some of the product impact that our suite of things that are really focused around information and and um, supplying customers and partners with information tools. How, how do we actually accelerate those in a way that has a net positive impact on sustainability? The other thing I think that's unique for Google is that, and and yes, we have done more and more venture investing over the past you know year or two years. But we've actually been pioneers in uh, all the different parts of the capital stack with respect to sustainability for many, many years. You know, we've pioneered concepts like PPAs, we've pioneered concepts like sustainability bonds, and we've participated in all different forms of capital that are required um, as we especially try to finance really long horizon types of technologies. Venture is just one part of the equation. And so I think where a corporate has an advantage is really being able to put together many different types of capital align that with demand understanding because we are ultimately a buyer of many of these technologies, put those things and ideas together and then come at the market with a really salient thesis in my mind. So in an ideal world, we can marry you know, a commercial need and object, um, objective that we will have for our operations, for our customers, for our products with deploying the right form of capital that will help catalyze um, a market uh, and then we can eventually be a customer of that. And so we we like to think about what our needs are today, what our needs we expect to be in 10 years and in 20 years, and how can we actually use different financing vehicles to catalyze that so we're in a, a much better position um, 10 years from now. So you kind of highlighted your, you mentioned a little bit about the, you know, the, you guys are huge consumers. They've got the 24-7. Caroline, you mentioned that too. And I think we've gotten a, a number of questions about that 24-7. So Caroline, let's go back to that 2017 moment. And then, you know, you, you guys were the first companies globally that was able to match all your data center energy needs with 100% renewable energy. And now you've got this 24-7 goal as well. Can you first start off kind of by sharing some of the lessons learned from that effort, both good and bad? And then what are some of those challenges that you see getting to that full 24-7 local energy supply ambition that Google has? It's a great story that I don't think we get to tell a lot. So we did a lot to essentially drive drive the market for corporate procurement of, of solar energy. And I think we're incredibly proud of that. I mean, to date, I think we've we've contracted for over over a gigawatt, over close to a gigawatt and a half of, of solar PPAs, right? So that's a lot of deals that we've done. 
And we've done them in multiple different types of markets. I think there's three big lessons that we learned out of it. The first was that if you don't have a market in a grid that is designed for the ultimate goal of, of decarbonization, putting a bunch of, 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 of solar or wind on a grid without uh, the partnership of the, the, the rest of the stakeholders that are involved to utilize that for its ultimate value is not going to necessarily get you the result that you want, right? So in many areas of, of this country, we were deploying a lot of solar, you know, hundreds of megawatts of solar. And what we weren't seeing is we weren't seeing those coal plants come offline. Why weren't we seeing those coal plants come offline? Well, because the, the markets that dictated the, the value stream of the energy assets that were attached to the grid and the intention of the policymakers and the stakeholders were to add solar strictly for the demand of a customer sustainability goal, but not to optimize the use of that solar to actually drive decarbonization of the grid and get the coal offline that we wanted to get offline. So that actually created some inherent barriers. And what we, we ultimately saw in some cases were we were investing in solar, driving down the cost of solar, standardizing the corporate PPA, bringing all these new entrants um, to the table, and our counterparts, utilities, were proposing new NGCTs to firm that solar. And that kind of made our head go, hey, that's not exactly what we want to do here. Um, let's, let's rewind that a bit. I think the second thing that we learned is it takes too long to sign a PPA. That is a really inhibiting factor to new entrants in the market. Right. So we there is a, a gold rush on clean energy um, and it's a hurry up and wait sort of situation for many for many companies that are trying to get in. And so we we had this this wealth of knowledge, both on markets and on procurement. And so we turned around and we said, OK, what can we do with both of these? And that has motivated really where we went next. So we set our 24 seven carbon free energy goal which is the most ambitious corporate goal out there and is in a, you know this incredibly out of the box goal which is that we're going to operate everywhere every hour on locally sourced completely carbon free energy that expands our technology back so we're not just doing wind and solar anymore we're doing we're very technology inclusive that causes us to think about market design in a whole new way that also causes us to think about innovation and products, right? So to be fair, commercial and regulatory products for and regulated products for solar haven't changed that much. And that's because the markets and, and the utilities and the suppliers haven't been forced to change that much, right? And so as a customer, one of our the biggest things that we have to do in order for us to meet our goal, and not just us, but for everyone, because if Google meets its 24-7 goal and no one else does, and we've essentially failed, we have to reform markets and market design. So that's a huge part of what we're doing right now, because ultimately we don't want to just add solar to the system and have it end up becoming an inhibitor to decarbonization because we haven't we haven't created the markets and the structures and the transmission infrastructure and everything along with it that actually optimizes that use. The second thing that we're working on right now, which I think is probably re really relevant to your audience, is that second point which I touched on, which is that it just takes too long. You know, green tariff programs throughout this this country take too long for customers that don't have access to a wholesale market to sign up for. Signing your first PPA takes way too long. So we've created these two partnerships. One uh, we've created with Level 10, uh, a project LEAP, 
where we've taken the time from signing a PPA from uh, a solar PPA from a year to roughly two months. And I liken it to the way that the, the building industry shortened the time to get a mortgage on a house, right? Like it used to take a year to get a mortgage. Now you can do a mortgage in a week if you accept certain contract terms. Um, we've just sort of piloted this and I invite everyone to check out our blog. It has more information on it and I can send it over to you, you can link in the in the notes. We're hoping that this creates a catalyst really for the turnover. Um, of course, if we sign a bunch of, of, of PPAs, we deploy a lot of renewable energy in this country, we have to have a grid and a market that can accept it, right? So on the back end of that, we're really working on the transmission infrastructure build, the queue reform, the market design that we're actually going to need so that we can harness the benefits um, and actually deploy these in, in, in time. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. You know, when you partner with our partner, Trina Solar US, you get more than best-in-class Vertex modules. You also gain a bankable partner for optimized compatibility and improved system value. With the Trina Pro Utility Scale Solution, or C&I Solutions, Trina Solar is the only PV module manufacturer in the United States that offers one-stop system integration solutions, including Trina Tracker, inverters, and full BOS support to lower your levelized cost of electricity. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey, can I borrow your attention for just one minute? How many of you in the residential solar install game right now would really say that your workflow is built to win? You know, in the 2010s, solar was all about sales. I think that the winners of the 2020s is really gonna be contractors that focus on operational efficiency. See, margins are getting squeezed and there's a ton of competition out there, but everyone has an opportunity to improve. Would you like to know the score of the value of your survey and design process? Would you like to hear about the evolution of the installer workflow? Well, then I would encourage you to join myself and my friend Jason Steinberg from Scanifly next Wednesday, the 31st of May at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Or maybe it's this Wednesday, or maybe you already missed it and you need to go see the replay at any point. You are going to benefit from the insights that we're going to reveal. The benefits of a tech-driven solar ops program, the transition from manual to digital surveys, it's all there. I hope that you will check in, tune in, register, and uh, throw us some hard questions. We always love it in our live broadcasts. Join us May 31st, 2 p.m. with Scanifly. See you there. Given that, I wanted to do a quick rapid fire question to each of you that is kind of um, that touches basically what you're you're asking about some of these. So quick rapid fire question. And you can own the max answer is only two words. Question. If you had $10 million right now to spend however you want, what is one specific thing you'd want to either purchase, invest in or create? Caroline, you want to go first? No, I don't. I don't, I don't want to go first. <laughs> okay. If I, yeah, I don't want to go first. Let Mark, me, I, I'll give it to you first. 
<laughs> All right. Okay. So now, <laughs> oh, this is hard. Um, I'm going to say drills in the ground. <laughs> drills in the ground. Okay. That's drills in the Three. ground. Four letters. That's four words. Four words. That's okay. Okay. Caroline, back to you. 10 million. You're not getting 10. drills in the ground for 10 million. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, with 10 million, I would, I would change the registries in this country for rec trading. And I okay. would actually tie it to, to hourly resolution so people could actually understand the carbon footprint of their operations. All right. Did the audience hear that? She just gave a a customer just told her, tell us what a specific pain point that she has. And if she had $10 million, she might be able to um, either be a customer or I mean, an yeah, investor. Yeah, we're working on this too. But <laughs> I'm saying like, it's a, it's something that I that is critical because you you can't you can't measure and you can't fix what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. Once again, just a reminder for the audience: if you do have a question for the panelists, just type it into the Q and A um, box. And so, I want to take some time and go a little bit, get a little bit spicy here. I'm going to go back to you, Mark, in climate tech especially energy specifically, the normal path for a startup, which you kind of mentioned in your first answer, that normal path for a startup corporate partnership generally starts with a pilot. But in a previous conversation, you said pilots are where startups go to die. Can you explain that view? Yeah, um, open, open to debate here. Um, but in <laughs> our experience, so in our experience, climate software is different than selling regular enterprise software. So we're not selling Airtable, we're not selling Dropbox, we're selling software to companies and utilities that have very intense operations that often have some sort of environmental or safety uh, risks associated with their operation. And so when we sell software to those businesses, call it like a, a utility or or a manufacturing facility or something like that, the companies that are buying those software products are inherently designed to minimize risk at all costs. And so what they do, because if they were to install a software product for one of their mission critical operations and it were to fail, then there could be real safety risk. What they do is they take these software products and they put them into like a like a 12 or 18 month pilot period. And so it becomes difficult if you're the entrepreneur trying to commercialize in that space because you say, hey, I just signed up this big corporate customer, this big utility. You know, I got this awesome logo to put on my website. Oh, but they put me in a pilot for, you know, and they're going to pay me 40K and it's going to take 18 months. And then maybe after the pilot, I'll expand to one small kind of small side business unit of their organization. And by that point, I've all I've spent you know 24 months of startup resources on it, and so it, it, I I get it because from the from you know the perspective of the big corporate, they want to minimize risk at all costs. Their their operations are very high risk inherently, and so introducing any sort of change into their operation is introducing risk. But from the startup perspective, it's you know you have to expect really long sales cycles, and you have to capitalize your business appropriately because if you lean into sales and marketing too much then you'll burn out realizing that you know it's going to take you 18 months to get a 40k account so we're always trying to weigh that 
we've built out a full edge team and a full commercial go-to-market team that specializes in selling to some of these industrial corporates that naturally have longer sales cycles. And yeah, and we're we're always, you know, coaching our entrepreneurs is selling climate software is much different than selling any other sort of, you know, enterprise software because yeah, if you're if you know, if you're selling software to the valley, there's inherently less risk than selling software to a, a gas or electric utility. So no, what do you think of um, Mark's answer or comment first and then his his response? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think fundamentally what, you know, Mark you're saying is go to market is really different when you are selling climate software or hardware. And I think it's sometimes hard for investors in climate there are so many different types of investors, each with different expertise, and I think being able to really tell your unit economic story makes a big difference in that. So when I when I hear pitches, um I really want to understand what makes what's going to make your sale process your go-to-market, almost an inevitability. I don't want to hear a uphill battle where I need to convince 15 stakeholders at a big corporate, you know, like a Google to buy my software or buy my technology. I want you to tell me why you're making an ironclad case for why your technology will drive some kind of cost saving, drive some kind of demand fulfillment, make it basically a no-brainer. And so I think what it comes down to is that Enterprise software, which I've spent a number of years doing, is just a really different buyer. Like the person you're talking to, the point of contact you have is different than when you're selling climate software. It's different than when you're selling different parts of, you know, the climate and sustainability space. The types of technologies are so varied. Uh, I think it's really important both to know on your operating plan which kind of go-to-market sales channel partnership model you're pursuing and whether that's 100% aligned to the type of buyer that you have for the type of technology that you have. But then also when you're speaking to investors, it's really making sure you're being true to that story and not just telling investors, well, like, let me take some lessons from SaaS that I know that, you know, is a proven out market, apply it to this type of climate software, which which just has completely different dynamics in terms of what the motion looks like, the types of resources you need to have as a business to support that, and the types of investments that you need to make. Uh, just to kind of pander to investors. So I, I would try to like remain really honest to the to the actual fundamental dynamics in the business, what's happening in the market fundamentally, like who are your buyers and how are you as a supplier communicating something that is is so necessary to that buyer that it's a really, you know, how can you basically grease the wheels of the sales motion that you're going to have? So following up on that, so Caroline, and what... I- I think that's a quite interesting. I mean, you essentially are representing as coming from the sustainability office, you're representing that buyer. One of the comments you made in our previous discussion was that I think I'm going to paraphrase. So please correct me if if I'm paraphrasing wrong. I think you you said a statement that was like, you can't have a customer doing both customer discovery and market development as well. Can you explain that? And can you actually tie that to one specific example? I mean, you already talked about the PPA. I think that's probably one of the examples you're talking about. But is there something else that you can give an example of as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could probably give hundreds, but let's. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I think my initial comment was, you know, when Google said it's 100 percent our equal, we were matching globally, you know, counting up megawatts on one side, matching it to megawatts on the other side, which basically just meant we had to go to markets where we could sign PPAs. Okay, so there are markets all over the globe where we can sign PPAs 
And so we flush those markets um, with capital. When you take a 24-7 goal, you have to develop those resources on the grid that you operate on. And you have to make sure that those resources have a, a shape that meet your operational footprint, right? So shape risk changes substantially and financial risk changes substantially, right? Because it's a different variable by which you're, you're matching to, right? So that actually means you have to be much more innovative in the product design that you are then going out to acquire. We are now in the situation where we are going out to market and we are trying to come up with the products which we want to buy, which is a very weird place to be in. So we're going and working with the, our developer community and, and we are spending you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours thinking through how do you actually uh, revolutionize contract structuring? How do you revolutionize capital investment to create a stack of technologies that meet a load shape? As opposed to just saying, what is the lowest EREC cost that we can get here? Because it's not about least cost procurement anymore. It's actually about fundamentally decarbonizing the grid. And that's a much harder thing to do. And there aren't products out in the market right now to fundamentally decarbonize the grid. And so you just you just mentioned that you are working with some developers. How would other folks who might be either project developers, solar installers, other renewable energy installers, even entrepreneurs, if they wanted to try to get into this mix to help solve this specific problem that y'all have, is there an avenue for them to participate? Yeah. I mean, so we we recently did a CFE manager deal with AES and he'll kill me, but my counterpart, uh, Reed uh, Spolik, is, is, is championing that work within our team. The engagement looks like being innovative and getting in and, and contacting Google and saying, I have some innovative ideas on how we can stack different technologies and, and, mm -hmm. and create capital. I mean, engaging in our, our, our LEAP program is one way, but that, that is really about just de deployment of, of resources right now. The other way to get engaged, I think, is with our regulated products that we're working on um, throughout the country, which is, you know, ultimately we as customers, we consume a tariff. So you have to change tariffs in this country too. So that's another thing we're working on. We're working on trying to redesign tariffs so that tariffs align the willingness of corporate capital uh, to the technologies the grid actually needs to decarbonize and getting the value for those technologies and accelerating their deployment. Unfortunately, we don't have like um, a brokerage hub. Maybe this is my lesson learned from this podcast that I need to go back and say we need this one-stop shop sort of place. But we're we're pretty accessible team. Are you gonna are you gonna change that ten million dollar um Answer that, uh, Caroline. Yeah, no, I don't know, but it, you know, I, I feel like I, I feel like we are always hitting the pavement. We are out mm. there, um, and so I think that the the question is, what is the what is the supplier community going to do to be innovative? And and to be honest, we have to generate demand for this innovation. That's mm -hmm. a, another big part of it. Is is if the other entities in this country are are not demanding these products either, it, it's going to be hard to scale them. So I want to change the change gears a little bit. So we've been talking a lot about um, you know about on the energy supply side. Sonala, can you tell us a little bit about some of the other sustainability opportunities within Google products itself that you that either has historically been worked on or what you're actually looking for now? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think there's actually a lot of innovation happening at the startup level in spaces that Google really fundamentally cares about. So if you think about Google's core businesses, um, you know, setting aside ads, which is a major part of our business model, our products and, and what we are is really like an information platform company. So what is the power that someone like Google, which has this incredible scale has is both access to billions of users around the world, but also access to incredible amounts of data. And so where I see the most interesting applications are on platforms that we already have, like our maps platform, where are there sustainable impacts and opportunities that we can have there? There are other products we have like Earth Engine, which are surfacing insights about, you know, the Earth's crust, about weather, about, you know, carbon emissions in certain areas uh, and being able to map that. Uh, and I can see lots of opportunities coming to bear in that space around MRV, you know, project verification. How can you use some of the data with satellite imagery to actually measure, you know, identify opportunities for interesting projects around um, emissions management or removals, for example? How can you marry data with some of these great upcoming sustainability applications all around the world where you might not have, you know, the in in many cases, some of those processes are very human capital intensive. And so how can you actually use data and information? in a, you know, really digestible format to make decisions that have important impact to decarbonization, to, you know, maintaining biodiversity, to managing things that the really um, tactical things that happen with climate change, like droughts and fires and uh, floods. How can you use some of our tools to actually uh, apply and, and um, manage some of the things that consumers are going to feel mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, decisions that businesses make. So I think there's incredible energy and um, applications that I've seen in the in the startup space that are taking that sort of ethos and applying it. And when I think about where we can make investments or even acquisitions, frankly, is with respect to sustainability and our products is in those kinds of spaces that really further the mission and application of our core fundamental tenants um, and apply them in climate and sustainability. You know, Google, you know, we organize the world's information, right? And we make it accessible. That's sort of our tagline. And what I think is so interesting by what we're doing, both on our operational approach and with our products is at the end of the day, climate change is a, is a result of many factors, but one of the major factors it's a result of is market failure. We have just information asymmetry everywhere. And so this wonderful role that Google can play in narrowing that gap creates opportunities for the entire ecosystem to start filling in with the actual other solutions, which I, th I think is one of the strongest places we play. And on our operation side, we're, we're reflecting that and doing that same thing. It's there's this huge gap in, in understanding when a company goes out and says, you know, has a, a million different green claims and makes different ideas that what is the information behind that? What does that actually mean, right? And part of our 24-7 goal is that, you know, we're going to be transparent. We're going to actually put out our carbon footprint. It's not great everywhere, everyone. Like, let's be honest, it's not great everywhere. And so that's where this like call to arms part of Google comes in place because there's no way we're going to get to a 24-7 a carbon-free future unless everyone else can too. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I think is really beautiful about what Google is doing is it's saying, here's this huge gap in knowledge and agency 
because frankly, we just don't know what we don't know. And we're trying to reduce that gap and create those pathways, whether it's through products, whether it's through partnerships, or whether it's through policy in our own operations to narrow that gap and, 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 and to create the change that we ultimately know we have to see. And that's where I see a lot of that cutting across. And I think it's really, it's, it's something that we don't celebrate enough, which is the transparency of how bad it actually is and how much work we actually need to do. And I think that's exactly the purpose of the climate change works or the Google X startup or Google X Google for startup accelerator climate change program. I think um, I'll do a plug in with where the 12 or the 11 other companies, startups that are part of my cohort um, with along with Bodhi that I think that's the intention, how to figure out how to use all the information that and the expertise that Google has and the capabilities to be able to make a bigger impact. We're coming down around time. I want to jump back to Mark here. We've got the IRA, the biggest climate change bill that's been passed ever, actually. And so it's setting up a lot of tailwinds. Do you have anything specific how startups or corporates should be thinking about that and how they should plan out their strategy going forward? Overall, I mean, just setting the stage, the IRA is the most influential um, piece of legislation to, you know, to provide tailwind to the, the fight against climate change, I believe, in like the history of, of America. But the the issue is right now, not a lot of people know exactly how to take advantage of it. And so there's been a lot of grand um, you know, proclamations around production tax credits and investment tax credits. And I think now we're trying to really figure out exactly how that can trickle down to the actual you know, folks that want to take advantage of some of those credits. Overall, I mean, it's it's going to be, you know, incredibly beneficial. There's going to be massive tailwinds. We're seeing a lot of funds actually kind of sprout up to take advantage of, of various aspects of the IRA. Um, and that's, that's across all different types of, you know, all the different types of capital from venture capital all the way to infrastructure capital. But yeah, in general, right now, there's still kind of this opaqueness. Um, and I think people are still trying to get their hands around, okay, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for mm-hmm. my business? Actually, I think there, there are startups that are um, sprouting up to help people learn how to take advantage of the IRA. So uh, that's kind of the current state that we're in right now. Yeah. So, Nal, do you have any comments about uh, the IRA relative to how startups should think about it? No, I mean, I, I would second what Mark said. I, I think it's a such a capstone of you know legislation that's going to be so monumental for both through 2030 but also beyond 2030 we're seeing similar types of bills um in europe and europe always being a little bit further ahead of us on the climate change and and, uh, climate impact space uh you know it's it's great to see the us also take a really firm stand on what types of technologies what types of production what types of manufacturing we want to incent to, uh, you know, really catalyze the next phase of growth and in, in climate. Uh, I agree. I think it's still really challenging to actually figure out how to actuate and how to act on um, and receive some of the benefits uh, that are actually built into the IRA. So I'm excited to see how some of these companies try to make that process more fluid and and easier, especially for startups, which perhaps don't always have the resources to do the type of like advocacy grant writing, uh, you know, mm-hmm. application work that is required to take advantage of some of these benefits. But I think this is a great place to start. Uh, it's it's really early days and, and I'm excited to see. I'm already seeing how uh, startups are coming and pitching and saying like, hey, we were actually already working on this project. 
uh, and an approach to, you know, name your space in so many different types of hard to abate industries, the IRA is really a tailwind for us and, and lay out how the techno-economic analysis looks even better um, when you add in all these subsidies and, uh, and incentives. And I think you're right. I think that goes to another example of how probably the startup corporate partnership is going to be essential here. It's going to be the, the bigger companies that have the ability to understand how to apply for some of these grants that when they're written. All right, we've only got eight minutes left here. I do have one last question I want to ask each of the panelists. Now, this one question is, you know, for everyone listening in, we've got folks, I think, that are, you know, students all the way up to investors, to to corporates as well. What is one super practical, tactical thing that each person here listening should do tomorrow on Earth Day to drive climate action? So, Caroline, can I start with you? What is the most tangible thing you could do in a single day? Go actually understand your energy bill. All right. From top to bottom. And who your public service commissioners are. (laughs) Who's making the decisions about what technologies are on your phone. Yeah, for those that uh, do do that tomorrow and look at your electricity bill, one, you're probably not going to understand it. And then two, you're probably going to be really pissed off and want to call all your local solar installers to uh, well, help see, out. That's what will happen. <laughs> Driving change one information at a time. Exactly. All right, Mark, how about you? Uh, don't laugh at this, but like, thank your local electrician because we are in a massive electrician shortage here in the U.S. We're going to need... Um, skilled labor in order to electrify everything in order to install EV chargers or install um, heat pumps at home or even build some of these major capital projects across wind and solar. And we just don't have the electrician resources uh, required to, to electrify the U.S. And so it might not be it might not be the most like massive kind of macro impact that you could have. But just encouraging, you know, people to get excited about the industry and and kind of work in the industry and especially electricians, because we we just currently do not have the labor that we need to uh, to electrify the U.S. All right. So audience members who are looking for an idea, electrician vocation schools, open those up, open up, try to set up a electrician marketplace, gig economy. Is that why I just heard Mark? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so no, what about you? Um, I would actually come at this from a slightly different angle. Um, and I speak from the context that I haven't spent my entire career in climate and sustainability. So I would actually suggest everyone in this forum who you all work in this industry day in, day out, are passionate about it, stay up to date on the news, find one person who has not has no idea what what the recent developments in solar, geothermal, nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, all of these incredible technologies, go explain to them one fact that they might not know. Because I will say from, I don't know, somewhat of an outside-in perspective, there's so much energy, enthusiasm, knowledge in the climate space. But outside of that, awareness is relatively low. People haven't really internalized the types of incredible advancements, the types of difference in costs we were talking about from 10 years ago to where we are today. 
people don't even know. And there are small things that they can change in their day-to-day behavior that if they, if they knew, if they listened to podcasts and, you know, read about the space, they, they might be better um, aware, but frankly speaking, just talk to your neighbor. They might not know. And there's so much information in these, you know, exciting forums that I think it's, it's our duty to almost spread it and talk about it with other people. So maybe just talk to one person on Earth Day to share that awareness. All right. For, so for those that are a little bit shy, we did um, offer up an icebreaker joke at the beginning of the uh, the show that you can use tomorrow to start that conversation. We even gave you two quiz um, questions that you can use to help educate. Hey, Nico, you've been listening in this entire time. What's your one super practical thing that each person here listening should do tomorrow on Earth Day? Yeah. So uh, as someone who used to live in a big city and now live in a rural community, uh, I've been really inspired by my children who have asked us to take public transit more often. And there are a handful of ways that we can all reduce our carbon footprint. One is understanding our energy, as Caroline said, and managing it better. The other two are just drive less and eat less meat. If you haven't read Project Drawdowns, I'm going to throw a couple of things at you. But the practical thing is just drive less, like take a day tomorrow where you uh, suffer like most of the people in the world who don't have a car at their uh, to, to be their personal chauffeur um, and in, in, in engage in and with your community through the joy of public transit. I think that'd be the one I wanted to point out that for folks who are looking for more resources or maybe even like uh, events, uh, 350.org it was founded by Bill McKibben. You may know Bill McKibben, who's a famous environmentalist, founder of Third Act. Um, 350.org is um, building coalitions in lots of uh, major cities. So uh, they also have a ton of resources and um, they they organize protests and things like that. So um, it's a, it's another practical way. I'm sure there will be a 350.org calendar of events uh, for, for Earth Day. I didn't check it out, but it just came to mind um, as I was listening through this as well, because I, I like everyone else on the panel, think, well, what is the most practical way? Because we don't all have 100,000 followers on Instagram or, or somewhere else that we could say, hey, look, uh, you know, drive less. Um, but but Nico, start, you do. <laughs> but it does start with, with like what Sonal said, uh, with tell one person. And, uh, and that, that spreads this concentric Yeah, circles. I'll tell my one follower on Instagram. There you go. <laughs> All right. If the panelists can stay on, I want to see if you can have answer this one question from Anurag Sharma. He is a graduating CS student, which I'm assuming is uh, computer science. His question is, what tech should he focus on for a career in climate tech? Skills, experience, projects, degrees required to excel in climate tech. And then maybe, yeah, we'll just answer that one question and then we can adjourn. Who wants to take that on? I will give my stock answer for this, which is anyone who says, what should I do with my career? I always recommend doing two things. The first thing is find a startup and work at a startup. Or, um, because even if the startup fails, you will learn how to do so many different aspects of a business and you will learn what it is you like and what it is you don't like about business. The other thing is uh, volunteer for a political or policy campaign. It will force you to pitch an idea, talk to people you don't want to talk to, um, and you will figure out how most of the decisions in this country are made. And if you can do those two things, those things will help you figure out the problems you want to solve. The skill sets will change. The skill sets you need today are going to be radically different than the skill sets we need in 15 years. But if you, they will help you to figure out the 
problem you want to solve, and then you'll be able to narrow the skill set in on, on how you're going to solve it. That's great advice, Caroline. Mark, you got a answer for Anurag? Yeah, I am thinking of it kind of like as, as an engineer. Um, I actually think you you can't really go wrong because climate now permeates so many different industries, whether you're a computer science major or whether you're a chemical engineer or a mechanical, mechanical engineer or you're someone that's studied business. Um, I think there is still, regardless of what your background is, there's a way to get involved in climate. And so I, I would just kind of echo Caroline and just say, find that niche of climate that you're interested in. Maybe it's developing a software product or maybe it's trying to, I don't know, work on the material science side of things and create a, a more efficient solar panel. I think there, there quite literally is something for everyone in climate. Um, and it's just finding out what you're interested in and then and then kind of honing your skill set in that category. Great. And then Sonal, what about you? Yeah, I would 100% agree with what Caroline and Mark have said. And I would only add that, especially as a student, um, in, in climate, it's not as the market is not as simple as just, you know, we build a product and we, we work with our consumers. There's, it's so multilateral. There are political organizations, philanthropic organizations, there are corporates, there are different types of buyers, there are different types of consumers. I think the best thing you can do early in your career is just try to expose yourself to all of those different parties and see how they think. Because I think what makes the most successful you know, entrepreneurs or even part, just general participants in the climate space and any space, frankly, is when you have empathy for the all the different types of parties that you might be working with. Um, you know, you you ideally want to negotiate with people, not against people, but just being able to understand the perspective of where even oil and gas companies, even like you know, old school utility companies, just understand where everyone's coming from. And I think that'll always bring success in whatever endeavor you choose. I'll answer that question and be really selfish. Uh, I'll take what Caroline said and add to it. Um, it really doesn't matter where you start. You guys got to start. And if you don't know where to start, I've got 600 episodes on Suncast that you should go listen through. Uh, if you're the kind of person who just sort of listens as much as possible and reads every book, then great. I've got a conversation there for you hidden somewhere, including an interview with Scott, a hopeful interview forthcoming with Sonal, Caroline, and Mark. I want to thank everyone who joined us for today's live broadcast. Um, it really is a joy to get everyone here uh, on the same page. I hope that you will use this as a catalyst and a spark in your own community for your own Earth Day events as, uh, as we go out into our own individual communities. I want to thank Mark. Sonal and Caroline for joining and thank our friends at Bodhi for helping put this wonderful event together. My name is Nico Johnson, your host from Suncast and Suncast Media. I want to thank our Suncast Media team as well for helping put this together and just say thank you so much for joining us. All right, Solar Warriors, now you've got practical tools, tips, and advice from real sustainability experts on what you can do, not just on Earth Day, but every day because action is sorely needed. If you want to learn more about startups in the climate change category, you can watch our YouTube videos, which include introductions from entrepreneurs in the Google for Startups Accelerator Climate Change and get insight into what solutions exist out there in the world of climate change. If you're interested as well in startups and investing in climate tech, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to listen to our newest podcast, Climate Avengers. You can learn more about that by clicking on the link that is handily in your podcast app to resource labs. And of course, I'd like to take a moment and thank 
the partners who join with us each and every week to bring this show to you free. At least it's free to you. You can find out more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsors. Last but not least, certainly thanks to our friends over at Bodhi Solar for helping us pull together this wonderful panel for our Earth Day live broadcast. Scott Wynn, Katarina, you guys truly are a cut above the competition and it is a pleasure to work with Bodhi. Thanks to all who joined us live and thanks to you for listening in this replay. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll share with us what it is that you're taking away from this broadcast. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solo Warrior. It's half the battle. Mm-hmm.